listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 139. We are revisiting the issue of sexual violence in the workplace, and we are talking to the Coalition of Immokalee Workers about an interesting initiative that they're heading up with a Wendy's boycott that also tackles issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault in farm work. And we will also look at a separate workplace safety initiative for women workers in Bangladesh. But first, the news. So it looks like Microsoft has now joined the boys' club of male-dominated Silicon Valley tech giants entangled in sex discrimination claims. It started with charges brought by a few women regarding years of systematic discrimination in employment and promotion decisions, but now the original plaintiffs have moved to bring a major class action suit involving more than 8,600 women, and that may just be the tip of the Silicon iceberg. As a group, the women allege that over a number of years, they were unjustly denied more than 500 promotions and the equivalent of about $100 million to $238 million in pay. In their filing, they describe, quote, an abusive, toxic boys' club atmosphere where women are ignored, abused, or degraded. It all fits into a general pattern of discrimination, degradation, and sexual violence against women in the tech industry. According to BuzzFeed, one of the looming legal obstacles for justice for these workers is the non-disclosure agreement. It's a private contract that enables the boss to compel the worker to basically preemptively sign away their right to publicize any misconduct that might occur after a settlement happens or to deter them from litigation. It's basically a tool used to shield the company from legal liability. Um, and it's not always used in the context of sexual harassment, but in case that a violation does occur, it can be, and advocates warn that it becomes a sort of legal gag order on many women victims. There are also allegations of sexual harassment at Microsoft. According to Bloomberg News, current and former female employees in Microsoft cite instances including talking about their bodies, staring at their breasts, and organizing an Xbox party that included scantily clad women dancing on tables. But far from this pubescent dystopian wonderland is Microsoft's massive PR campaign, touting its efforts to expand workforce diversity, supposedly, and encourage gender parity in its executive ranks. Unfortunately, this lawsuit shows that whichever women are symbolically installed in the corporate leadership, unless that hierarchy changes, the voices of thousands of workers suggest that they're still expected to subordinate their rights to a culture of male entitlement. At long last, some good political news. Last Tuesday's elections brought victories for socialists and friends of workers around the country. There were some pretty dramatic successes, like Lee Carter, a Democratic Socialist of America member, who defeated Virginia Republican House of Delegates Majority Whip Jackson Miller. Carter had uh, filmed himself putting a questionnaire from the National Right to Work Committee in a shredder underneath a sign reading Union Strong, and his opponent had sent out a mailer featuring Carter's face in line with that famous drawing of Marx, Lenin, and Mao, and he still won. Or there's Lydia Edwards, who will be joining Boston, Massachusetts's city council, a labor attorney who served as the statewide campaign coordinator for the Massachusetts Coalition for Domestic Workers, which, of course, advocated for the successful passage of the nation's strongest domestic workers' bill of rights. 
Candidates backed by DSA, Our Revolution and the Working Families Party, and aligned with the Movement for Black Lives won in Philadelphia, Durham, North Carolina, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Aurora, Colorado, and many other places. It was a pretty good sign, I dare say, for the 2018 elections and the power of a left labor politics. And a rebuke also to the logic that the left must play to the racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia of the far right in order to win. As Danica Rome, an out transgender woman, guitarist in a metal band, beat the author of Virginia's so-called bathroom bill for the Virginia House of Delegates again. And women and people, people of color won in the Deep South as well as the Far North. So it's nice to share some good news with you for a change. If you are in any of those places or are any of these newly elected candidates, we want to hear from you. You can always email us at belaboredatdissentmagazine.org. Last week, adding to the stream of miserable media industry stories, came another tragic tale of a vibrant media operations decline. And this time it wasn't just the usual financial collapse, but absolute sabotage by their own owner. The local news website Gothamist and its sister online publication, the multi-city daily chain DNA Info, were abruptly shut down by their ultra-rich and fiercely anti-labor owner, Joe Ricketts. The move came apparently in retaliation for uh, the small staff voting to organize a union. They were all laid off a few days after voting overwhelmingly to unionize with the Writers Guild East, which also represents a number of other digital media outlets. The workers are currently trying to work out a final deal with the company before it all breaks up. But the big takeaway is that a promising young media organization was shut down because of one big boss's hatred for organized labor and unions. That he is even allowed to shutter an organization for seeking to unionize represents the way that federal labor law these days can be twisted to serve corporate impunity. Sharon Block and Ben Sachs write on the onlabor.org blog, one of the reasons for this is because while employers are technically restricted from threatening to fire someone, current labor law is structured so that while it's illegal to threaten to close a company, the law allows owners the freedom to actually do it. Yes. The symbolism of the move is designed to both terrorize workers and to deter them from organizing, and to send a message to employers that if you have enough money and a good team of lawyers, there's virtually nothing you can't do to your workers, even when it puts the nation's fourth estate at risk. The authors describe the crisis at Gothamist and DNA Info as, quote, a loss to the communities they serve. The hope is these closings serve as a wake-up call that, because of their brazenness, puts in stark relief just how out of balance both workplace relations and the law governing them have become. Most people don't know that the death industry is big business. No, I'm not talking about gun manufacturers or bomb manufacturers, the more obvious big death businesses. I'm talking about the funeral industry. So a union victory for the gravediggers and other workers at Rose Hills Memorial Park in the Los Angeles area is actually pretty big news. As Jason McGahan at the LA Weekly wrote, quote, Service Corporation International, or SCI, is America's biggest undertaker, a company Bloomberg labeled Death Inc. At 1,400 acres, Rose Hills, located in Whittier, is the largest of the 470 cemeteries that conglomerate owns, the largest in North America, and likely the busiest. Rose Hills buried nearly 7,000 people last year, according to staff, and that doesn't include the cremations or the cremation niches in several mortuaries on site. SCI also owns 1,502 funeral homes. 
It's the Walmart of the cemetery business, said John Martin, a union rep with the Cemetery Workers and Greens Attendance Union, SEIU Local 265, based in Oakland. The union sought to represent the 58 mechanics, welders, and gravediggers at the cemetery. End quote. So though cemetery workers face the same kinds of union-busting tactics that workers around the country do, captive audience meetings, heavy surveillance, threats, racism, but it turns out that cemetery work is, well, it's a job that is pretty hard to outsource. What's the corporation going to do? Dig up the entire cemetery and move it? The 58 workers voted to organize despite the heavy anti-union campaign. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers has been one of the brightest spots of the agricultural labor movement, and they have managed, without a formal official union, to make great strides in the tomato fields of Florida. They have been organizing up and down the supply chain using their unique, innovative method of worker-led social responsibility, and they've been able to take some of the biggest agribusiness and food brands in the country to task on labor abuses in their supply chains. They were in town recently in a worker-to-worker dialogue with the Taxi Workers Alliance, and I caught up with them and spoke with them about their organizing methods and their new initiative to address sexual violence in agricultural workforces. Um, It's part of a broader campaign that they're rolling out called the Fair Food Program, which engages communities, consumers, uh, labor, and uh, the industry to work towards higher standards for both workers and the food itself in the food industry and agribusiness. I talked to coalition organizer Oscar Otsoy, as well as Yesi Solis. She is an organizer with the Alliance for Fair Food. She also helped translate for Oscar. Um, since your strategy is based on um, targeting the corporations and the food brands at the top and the restaurant chains, um, how do you kind of use your model of reaching out to consumers and reaching out to corporations to bring attention to an issue like sexual assault? And bueno, creo que para nosotros el, uh, estos abusos ya han existido por décadas dentro de la industria agrícola. So sexual violence and assault has existed in agriculture for decades. Por muchos años, uh, la, las mujeres quienes trabajaban en la industria agrícola han venido enfrentando diariamente lo que es el acoso sexual con un uh, grado tan grande como para poder decir, uh, poder hablar sobre uh, cada problema y por qué se da este problema. Women have faced this daily uh, from unwanted advances to sexual violence and it's been such a, um, a high level of abuse that it's been difficult for women to speak out. Ahora que hemos, con todo el trabajo que hemos tenido, el trabajo que hemos creado, con el programa Por Comida Justa, con la campaña Por Comida Justa, Uh, es básicamente cómo decirle a las corporaciones estos son los abusos que pasan en el trabajo esta es la responsabilidad que ustedes tienen but with our campaign for fair food specifically now in our harvest stop islands campaign we're essentially uh, shedding light on the abuses that are happening within Wendy's supply chain letting them know how it's well documented and the responsibility and placing that responsibility on them and the leadership at Wendy's to take steps to eradicate que tan importante es que las corporaciones ayuden a prevenir eso. 
and it's important for corporations to work uh, to prevent those abuses. El hecho de que tengamos este programa implementando en los campos, el hecho de que le demos una voz a los trabajadores para hablar sobre estos problemas, también le estamos dando mecanismos para cómo uh, evitar que problemas de acoso sexual sean mucho más grandes de lo que podemos imaginar. The fact that the program is a voice for workers in the workplace, that is the mechanism that we have created for women in particular and any worker to be able to speak out um, and report instances of sexual violence. Y el apoyo de Taco Bell, de McDonald's, Burger King y las otras corporaciones está haciendo posible que esa voz de los trabajadores sea escuchado en el lugar de trabajo. And the support of Taco Bell, Burger King, Subway, and all together the 14 corporations that are working together with us, and the way that they are using their market power to enforce these standards in agriculture is helping to reinforce those those rights that that workers have and and allow it to be the solution. Entonces aquí entra la pregunta también sobre el papel de corporaciones como Wendy's, que en lugar de apoyar cómo eliminar o cómo prevenir casos de acoso sexual, entran para que podamos preguntarnos nosotros como consumidores qué podemos, qué más podemos hacer para llamar la atención de Wendy's como corporación a unirse a este programa. And so that's when the Wendy's campaign kicks in and the responsibility that Wendy's and the executives there, including Nelson Peltz, have to join this program. Um, we as consumers have that power to be able to uh, bring that message directly to them and let them know that they need to take steps to protect workers. How, how does it work exactly? Like when you reach an agreement with a corporation, do would they then agree to uh, cut off any supplier that has these violations? Um, is there a certain criteria that you know a supplier has to reach? To, how do you? How exactly does the enforcement process work if there is a violation? La manera en que uh, enforzamos que que estos que los derechos de los trabajadores se implementen es mediante el, los acuerdos legalmente hechos junto con las corporaciones. So the way we enforce human rights standards in the Fair Food Program is through the legally binding agreements that corporations sign. Y a, a través también del mecanismo de, de, de darle a la gente, a los trabajadores, de poder utilizar el teléfono, utilizar a la compañía para poder reportar uh, abusos de acoso sexual. And the fact that workers are able to file confidential reports, um, whether it be with the company or directly with the third-party monitoring organization, the Fair Food Standards Council. Y la manera en que lo enforzamos es que cuando una compañía agrícola se rehúsa de poder trabajar o poder colaborar 
para poder solucionar ese problema está el poder del mercado que utilizamos. And the way that it is reinforced is if there is a farm that is participating that is refusing to correct the situation in a timely fashion and bring swift consequences for abusers, then the market consequences kick in because the corporations can no longer uh, buy from those farms. Y ahí donde entra el, um, la demanda de los trabajadores que las corporaciones escuchen la voz de los trabajadores cuando hay problemas que pasan. Eso significa que nosotros, cuando una compañía agrícola no quiere solucionar el problema, le hablamos a ciertas compañías, ciertas corporaciones quienes compran tomate de allí, les explicamos el problema y ellos eh, están... Si, ellos tienen la obligación de cortar su compra inmediatamente si la compañía no arregla ese problema. And so if a farm is found to be uh, not in compliance with the code of conduct, then the corporate buyers are notified and they have to suspend purchases from that farm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Y, es, y es por eso que la participación de Wendy's en el programa Por Comida Justa es importante para poder uh, da, enforzar este, este programa y poder seguir uh, mejorando la comunicación que hay en ahora. And that's why it's essential for Wendy's to join this program because there has to be transparency within uh, their supply chain and for them to be able to open up those um, those those avenues for communication between workers who are suffering abuses and um, and their suppliers. Mm -hmm. And so being able to uh, work in that way to eradicate and really guarantee uh, human rights for workers within their own supply chain is by joining the Fair Food Program. Have you been able to um, help individual victims get compensated or give, um, you know, win damages in court? Or um, what about sort of justice for the actual victim and making sure that they are made whole through this process? Bueno, siempre hacemos el proceso que es legal, llevarlo a las cortes, también facilitar estas trabajadoras que tengan representación legal. Al mismo tiempo se ayuda a, a estas personas con, si es necesario, incluir a alguien que le ayuda psico, psicológicamente, es algo que la organización hace para poder apoyar siempre a la trabajadora que sufre este problema. And so in an instance of, of sexual violence, for example, if there is a case that is found um, to, to be able, you know, through the investigation, when it is found that sexual harassment is happening, um, we work um, with specific agencies to prosecute those cases um, and help facilitate then services for the worker to um, enter into rehabilitation or whatever kind of services they need to be able to feel whole again and of course um, there are consequences for abusers at work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one last thing is, um, you know, there's obviously a huge problem with um, people just feeling too fearful to report um, and um, I, I know that in, in farm work, um, not just for sexual violence but also in many cases when workers have suffered abuse they face being fired, blacklisted, especially if they're here on temporary visas, they could just be sent home and never work again, you know? So given that there are so many reasons to fear coming out, like what are some policies that can be put in place so that people feel safe 
coming forward, like so that people can feel protected, because a lot of people just don't trust the system for very good reasons. Um, una de las cosas que hace la uno de los trabajos que tal vez bien importante de parte de la coalición es uh, el hecho de que somos de la comunidad, vivimos en la comunidad, compartimos con la comunidad, escuchamos sus pensamientos de la comunidad, trabajamos con la comunidad para solucionar los problemas y también creamos esa confianza con la comunidad. One of the essential elements of the coalition is that it is led by farm workers themselves and so we are from that community we share the same values the same experiences and same realities and so there is trust um, with workers that their complaints will be uh, brought to a solution I know sabemos que el problema un problema de acoso sexual es difícil de poder reportarlo and we understand that speaking out against an instance, an instance of sexual violence is very difficult to do. Pero eso no es una razón por la que la gente se puede quedar callado con eso. But we don't want for workers to not speak out or report that abuse. Especialmente ahora que tenemos un programa que garantiza protección directamente para los trabajadores quienes son víctimas de esto. And especially because now there is a program that has been created that guarantees a solution for those types of instances and those types of sexual violence cases. Y si en caso de que algún patrón o alguna compañía tiene represalias en contra de una mujer que haya reportado cualquier abuso en el trabajo, incluyendo acoso sexual, y no lo vayan a recibir con eso, también es una violación al código o al... Es una violación a los acuerdos alcanzados con las corporaciones. And if there is any type of retaliation against any worker for coming forth and filing a complaint, that is also a violation of the code of conduct and is not allowed within the FAIRFOOT program. Entonces, eso no pasa. So that doesn't happen. Eso no ha pasado y esperamos que no pasa porque el momento que vaya a pasar eso, la compañía va a tener una consecuencia por tener represalias porque la gente está hablando de los problemas que pasan. And if that does happen, there is an automatic consequence for whoever is retaliating against workers for doing that. Yeah. Um, and one last thing, um, how many of your people and your staff and leadership are women, and is there a concerted effort to uh, incorporate women's voices and representation in your organization itself? En la, cual, en la coalición hay, vamos a ver cuántos, hay como seis mujeres, seis o siete mujeres quienes trabajan para la coalición. And so there's about six women on staff at the coalition. Y la manera en que creamos liderazgo dentro de nuestra comunidad es que uh, hay juntas de mujeres cada domingo donde ellas vienen a aprender sobre sus derechos. Ellas vienen a aprender también a hacer otras manualidades para poder uh, participar en la, en la coalición. The way that we build leadership among women in the community is every Sunday we have a women's group meeting where it's a space especially for farm worker women to get together to discuss um, the realities that they face, the problems, the solutions that they can dream up together and just build um, power within the community in that way. Yeah, y tal vez yo estoy aquí ahora, pero también tenemos otras compañeras quienes uh, 
no podemos, no pueden estar aquí. Nosotros nomás estamos para poder representar todo el trabajo que hacemos en grupo, en nuestra comunidad que está cada vez tomando liderazgos uh, con diferentes personas quienes uh, en un futuro puedan también uh, ser esa voz de la, de la comunidad. And so I'm here representing a collective of people working together um, and we're hopeful that our model and the work that we do can really lead to significant changes for people down the line um, and that we can all know that we're working towards the same vision together. And so that was one group of workers that have maybe not been in the headlines as much talking about sexual harassment. They were talking, of course, about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and other farm workers. Farm working women have stepped forward, though, to express their solidarity with the higher profile women whose stories of sexual harassment and assault are finally being heard in a letter published in Time magazine. Signed by some 700,000 women farm workers of the Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. That letter reads in part... We do not work under bright stage lights or on the big screen. We work in the shadows of society in isolated fields and packing houses that are out of sight and out of mind for most people in this country. Your job feeds souls, fills hearts, and spreads joy. Our job nourishes the nation with fruits, vegetables, and other crops that we plant, pick, and pack. Even though we work in very different environments, we share a common experience of being preyed upon by individuals who have the power to hire, fire, blacklist, and otherwise threaten our economic, physical, and emotional security. Like you, there are few positions available to us, and reporting any kind of harm or injustice committed against us doesn't seem like a viable option. Complaining about anything, even sexual harassment, seems unthinkable because too much is at risk, including the ability to feed our families and preserve our reputations. We understand the hurt, confusion, isolation, and betrayal that you might feel. We also carry shame and fear resulting from this violence. It sits on our backs like oppressive weights. But deep in our hearts, we know that it is not our fault. The only people at fault are the individuals who choose to abuse their power to harass, threaten, and harm us like they have harmed you. And now we go from Florida to Bangladesh, where another group of women workers are engaging in innovative organizing to protect their rights at work, as well as their health and safety. In the wake of many garment factory disasters in recent years in Dhaka and beyond, the OHS Initiative for Workers and Community in Dhaka was launched in a sector-wide effort to help low-wage garment workers, most of them women, through a transnational collaboration of occupational safety trainers. I spoke with Garrett Brown, a longtime worker safety advocate based in California, about the progress the group has made with their training of local women leaders in the program and how they'll be empowered to protect themselves going forward. So, as most people know, there was a terrible industrial accident in Dhaka, Bangladesh in April of 2013. A building called Rana Plaza collapsed, and there were five garment factories in that building and more than 1,130 1, workers were killed in an instant uh, in that building collapse, most of them women. So workplace health and safety, particularly in the garment industry, became a worldwide concern, and a lot of projects have been underway uh, by, the United, by the United Nations, uh, International Labor Organization. There are a couple of private sector initiatives as well. But one of the things that I noticed was that none of these projects were actually Bangladeshi-directed. 
meaning they were international projects that were designed and directed by people outside of Bangladesh, and that none of them really focused very much on grassroots level workers and uh, community members. So here in California, we've formed uh, what's called the California Collaborative. It's a uh, coalition or a working group of four organizations in California, the Labor Occupational Health Program at UC Berkeley, the Labor Occupational Safety and Health Program at UCLA, uh, Hesperian Health Guides, which is a uh, public health grassroots organization in Berkeley, California, and then my Dora uh, Health and Safety Support Network, uh, which has been doing work with garment workers around the world since 1993. So this California Collaborative uh, proposed to six grassroots organizations in, in Dhaka, Bangladesh, three of whom are labor. One uh, is a women's rights organization. One is a general public health organization. And the, and the sixth is a occupational safety and health non-governmental organization, one of the few that exist there. So we, we've uh, formed what's called the OHS Initiative for Workers and Community with those six grassroots-based NGOs in DACA with the support of the California Collaborative here in California. And the idea behind it basically is that each of these six NGOs are already doing worker education, not only with garment workers, but also workers in the tannery, tannery industry, uh, construction, shipbreaking, but almost all of it related to labor law issues and none of it to occupational safety and health because it's a subject that unfortunately is not very well developed in Bangladesh. So the idea of this project is to create a train-the-trainer program which would take the experienced worker educators from each of these six organizations and put them through a series of 20 uh, days worth of classes on the basic concepts of occupational safety and health and information on how to do effective trainings at a grassroots level with adult learners, which they already well experienced with. And then at the end of this 20-day series, uh, of classes, they these experienced trainers will go on to conduct their own workshops on health and safety topics with uh, within their own organizations, with uh, community members and workers of various uh, industries. And it's starting primarily with the garment industry because that's where the focus is today. But hopefully, in the next year, there will be expansion of uh, OHS workshops at a grassroots level. Uh, to other industries, including uh, construction, tanneries, shipbreaking, and the like. So this OHS initiative has got a staff of four in, in DACA, including a project coordinator and a training manager. And this Saturday, the 18th of November, will be the, the final day of the 20-day series uh, for 29 uh, trainers that uh, are from five of the six organizations. Uh, 15 of which are women, and they will, once the, the training series is completed this weekend, go on to begin conducting their own occupational safety and health trainings with their constituents um, in DACA. Mm -hmm. um, you said that um, occupational health and safety are not uh, well-developed fields in, in Bangladesh, and I was just wondering um, 
what were some of the challenges within that? Is it um, is it particularly difficult for them to, for instance, uh, you know, gain access to facilities? Um, do they need to go through some sort of uh, accreditation process? Um, is there some kind of level of official involvement that that's involved? And you know, do you need to jump through any hoops? I guess. Like, what are the obstacles? Right. So Bangladesh, as you may know, is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, and it has very little uh, resources, uh, both on an official level or on a professional level. So while the Dhaka University and the, and the Bangladesh University of Science and Technology do have some classes on occupational safety and health, it's really not on the same level uh, as other countries in the region, say India or, or others. And as a consequence, there's very few uh, trained professionals that exist uh, in Bangladesh. Moreover, the government, uh, unfortunately, is known as one of the most corrupt governments in the world, and it's heavily influenced by the uh, BGMEA, the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Exporters Association. Uh, garment exports now account for 80% of the export earnings of the country, and so it's a very important uh, economic uh, development for the country. So as a consequence, the government's not inclined to do anything that would discourage uh, the growth of exports or foreigners coming to invest in Bangladesh. So there is no effective enforcement of the few health and safety laws that exist in Bangladesh uh, until the Rana Plaza event uh, occurred, the disaster so uh, the government agency had literally only a handful of inspectors. This is a country of 163 million people, and you, there were less than 20 uh, occupational safety and health inspectors in the whole country for literally tens of thousands of garment plants and other workplaces. And the people that did work for the government were not very well trained and had no political motivation or will to to. Uh, uh, inspect places which were politically important to the government. So that changed a little bit under Rana, after Rana Plaza. Because the ILO, the International Labor Organization, uh, came in with a huge program. They've spent more than $250 million in Bangladesh since Rana Plaza to basically create, uh, out of nothing, a labor relations system so that workers have a right to uh, have unions, if they so choose, on the workplace, that the labor laws that, that Bangladesh has on the books in terms of wages and hours should be respected by the employers. And the ILO is basically created out of, out of thin air a, a health and safety department and done a lot of training uh, with the uh, almost 300 inspectors now between uh, <clears throat> health and safety and fire safety uh, and building inspectors. So... Uh, it's been uh, an uphill battle, but there's been quite a bit of progress made uh, through the ILO work. The most important thing, though, has been the development of what's called the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety. This is a binding legal agreement between 215 international clothing brands and two international unions based in Europe and their local affiliates. And unlike any of the other so-called corporate res social responsibility programs, this is a binding agreement where the brands have to uh, agree that their uh, supplier factories will be inspected by competent, independent people, uh, 
that all of the findings from these inspections will be made public, that the brands are required to work with their supply factories to resolve all of the findings that have been found on the three issues of fire safety, electrical safety, and, and building structural safety, and that workers have a genuine uh, role to play in this process as participants. So this process has gone underway since uh, Rana Plaza, since May of 2013. And in that period of time, the Bangladesh Accord has conducted more than 19,000 inspections of the 3,500 garment factories that are in, working, operating in Dhaka, have identified more than 115,000 safety hazards. And uh, about 80% of those have been corrected at this point. The others, unfortunately, are, are not haven't been corrected yet because they're big ticket items in terms of fire suppression systems and building structural issues. Uh, and that's a whole it's a whole other discussion as to why it's delayed so long. But the cord is is actually unlike standard CSR has had genuinely independent, competent inspectors, public reporting, mandatory correction of the hazards, and meaningful worker participation. And as a result, it set a good example, not only for Bangladesh, not only for the garment industry, but all global supply chains, including electronics, toys, food, etc. In terms of the actual experiences of, of these um, inspectors, once you deploy them in the field um, and they're on their own, uh, how easy will it be for them to operate in this environment that you said is um, you know, so often plagued with corruption and, and just a general unresponsiveness to workers? It's, it's an extremely well-crafted initiative operating in a really challenging circumstances. So um, how do you ensure that you know, going forward the program is going to be kept free of um, corruption, intimidation, and that you know, even these inspectors are... are just basically safe. What has gotten us to this point, uh, really, is that worldwide outrage that followed the, the, the 1,100 people being killed at Rana Plaza and the fact that the garment workers themselves had been organizing and mobilizing for years. So, but at that point of Rana Plaza, there was literally nothing in place uh, to ensure better uh, safe and safer working conditions. Now there is actually something in place. There's the government ILO program, and there's also the Accord, which has been extended for three years, from May of 19, 2018 rather to May of 2021. So hopefully all of the corrections for the Accord factors will be done by the time it completes its work in 2021. And then it will be up to the international community to keep the pressure on the Bangladesh government that now that it has the resources and human resources necessary to ensure safe and healthful working conditions in the garment industry, and not only in garment, but also in tanneries, construction, shipbreaking, which are the other big sectors of the economy, that they feel compelled to do so. So it's like life in general. There's no guarantees, and you only get what you fight for and what you can make people that have the power and the resources do with that power and resources. Uh, but I, I, I'm, you know, the first step for any of this, of course, is to actually create uh, an infrastructure to protect uh, the labor law rights of, of garment workers and their health and safety. This is a privately funded initiative for now. How do you make sure that it remains sustainable and that it remains independent 
into the future. Um, is this accord expected to last indefinitely? And I guess, I mean, there's still many, many factories that are not touched by this accord or that haven't been responsive right. to even the inspections. Well, and those are the ones right. that, frankly, really need the help, right? Sure. Right. So there's two initiatives here that we've been talking about, one of which is called the accord. And that, as I mentioned, uh, will finish its first phase in May of 2018 and then will extend another three years to May of 2021. The other initiative we're talking about is, is this separate uh, OHS initiative for workers and community, which is to train the trainer program to try and to develop grassroots uh, capacity in occupational safety and health. So the six leading NGOs that are participating in the OH initiative will, over the course of three years, generate 75 uh, trainers who uh, have, the, have had the basic OHS training and will begin conducting their own workshops. And we hope that some 6,000 workers will be trained by them over the course of the three years as well. Many of those are, are workers that are active or becoming active in the trade unions, which are very limited in, in Bangladesh, but are uh, also leaders of their communities. So that OHS initiative... Uh, it's going to be funded by the California Collaborative. We've been raising money from foundations and individual donors and, and professional organizations, professional OHS organizations. So we raised uh, $55,000 for the first year, which was 2017. We're going to raise uh, $65,000 for 2018 to reflect the expansion of the work because another class of 30 trainers will be recruited and trained in, in 2018, and then the 2017 class we want to support with refresher trainings and technical assistance for the trainings they're doing on their own, and then there'll be a third year. So we're hopeful that after three years, uh, the, the OHS initiative will become self-financing, and that's always a challenge in the developed world, uh, especially for health and safety, which funders are not that interested in, frankly. But Guy Alo has got a fair amount of money and attention that's being paid to OHS and, and Bangladesh and, and there are others. So, but this will be a project, one of the few projects that last that will be a Bangladeshi-directed uh, project on occupational safety and health. So we think that if there are people who care about those things, this would be a likely um, effort for them to support. Do you hope that this model, you said that you have worked with Maquiladoras in the past, um you know, here in, 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 um, at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from those experiences that you can bring to Bangladesh? And I guess what are some of the new insights you've gained from working in this different cultural context? You know, how similar are their conditions? And I guess, you know, it's a, it's a completely different, uh, you know, probably different industries, and I imagine that, you know, they face different challenges on the job. Right. So our my organization, which is called the Maquiladora Health and Safety Support Network, has actually been in existence from 1993. Uh, and it, it's about 300 occupational health professionals of various disciplines that have signed up to volunteer their, their time and knowledge on a pro bono basis to build the capacity of grassroots worker and community organizations. And we started out on the U.S.-Mexico border in 1993 because, as you know, NAFTA went into effect the following year, and health and safety people uh, were concerned, as was the case, that many factories would leave the United States and go to Mexico, where actually they have regulations that are roughly equivalent to the United States, but there's absolutely none, zero, enforcement. 
of those regulations in Mexico. So the importance of building the capacity of worker organizations, unions, women's organizations, neighborhood organizations was very clear uh, to the members of our of our network. And so we've conducted a lot of trainings since 1993 in Mexico. Then we expanded the work to Central America. Uh, we did trainings in the Pearl River Delta in China in the early 2000s. Uh, did work in Indonesia, and then for the last five years here in in, uh, in Bangladesh. So the Bangladesh project is sort of the culmination of everything that we've learned uh, in the past in terms of how to uh, unite organizations. So there's six grassroots organizations that are involved in this project to build their capacity so that they can uh, do their own trainings in a way that's much more effective uh, than we could coming from the outside because they know the culture, know the language, and are part of the, of the industries and the communities where they're teaching. So uh, this model has been uh, more well-funded in Bangladesh than in other places simply because of the outrage that followed the collapse of Rana Plaza and the, and the deaths of 1,100 people. Uh, but it's certainly what we've been trying to do for the last you know, 25 years and what we'll continue to try to do, and it's really a question of lack of resources rather than a lack of interest on the part of uh, worker and community organizations in the countries where we've been working. Yeah. And just one last thing, um, you know, when I first uh, sort of saw the that the, the Bangladesh Accord was um, sort of uh, coming to uh, coming together, um, I thought that the emphasis on workplace safety as opposed to workers' rights um, was intended to kind of keep out of the political arena. Um, can you talk about how um, these types of initiatives, um, you know, kind of navigate the the politics of labor um, in Bangladesh? I mean, the, there there have been labor unions for a very long time. It's as you said, it's much more established than occupational health and safety. Um, was the government trying to hope, you know, perhaps divert some of the attention um, by focusing on safety? And, and I guess, how do you meet that challenge? Well, I mean, I, I think if you look at labor rights generally cast, occupational safety and health is a labor right. You know, the right to go home at the end of your shift, alive and in one piece, is an important right that workers have under the law uh, internationally and, and in most nation states. So the focus on health and safety, I consider to be, frankly, a labor right. And workers consider it a labor right. I mean, workers are very concerned about their health and safety. It may not be the sexiest thing for funders, but it's certainly something that workers care about. But frankly, there's no way to have an effective health and safety program on a factory level without having genuine, meaningful participation by the workforce that's informed of the hazards, that's trained and knowledgeable about possible control measures, that have the authority and the release time and the paid release time to play the role that workers must play in effective OHS programs on a factory level. So that immediately triggers all kinds of other labor law questions, which is do workers in Bangladesh or anywhere else, including the United States, have a right to organize a union and not uh, face reprisals and discrimination as a result of that? Do workers have a right to express concerns on the job about health and safety? Uh, do workers have a right to make complaints and to get those complaints answered and the problems fixed? And that's what the Bangladesh Accord 
has done over the last four and a half years. And, and in fact, the new accord, the extension of the accord, expands the rights, the labor rights, the labor law rights of workers um, in terms of protection against retaliation and discrimination and the like. So there's been a natural natural evolution in the part of the Bangladesh Accord, which started with a labor right, health and safety, which involves other labor rights, uh, to place those more and more in the center of its work as well. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, that frankly, there aren't too many governments or employers that will say, well, you know, people deserve to die going to work. Everybody cl- claims, anyhow, that they're concerned about worker health and safety, that they're laying in bed at night, worried, awake about their workers' health and safety, et cetera. So that's an, interesting, that's an easy point of entry. But as I say, you can't have an effective health and safety program without genuine, meaningful worker participation. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG, I Wish I'd Written That. My piece is from In These Times. It is by Lois Weiner, and it is called How Business Unionism Got Us to Janice. In this piece, she tackles the tough question behind the tough question in the upcoming Supreme Court case. The Janice case, as we've discussed before, relates to one union, AFSCME, and a worker who has objected to paying the agency fees that help finance the organization, and if the court rules unfavorably, which is it, which it's expected to do, it will essentially undermine the entire financing structure that many unions rely on t- these days to carry out their organizing and collective bargaining operations. So basically, people say that this might destroy public sector unions, and Lois Weiner asks the critical question, well, what we need to do is not to focus so much on Janice, but to focus on how we got. So basically, so what are unions so afraid of exactly? While many unions have sought to consolidate their financial bases to prepare for Janice, maybe we should be asking for a much more fundamental reorientation of labor back to its first principles. She writes, Quote, belt tightening and talking to members may temporarily fortify the union apparatus, but this approach ignores the question Janice demands we ask. Why is Labor predicting members will desert their unions and that agency fee payers will refuse to join? Yes, why start with that assumption? And she argues, quote, in defining their purpose primarily as protecting members' narrowly conceived economic interests and shaping the organization to function like a business, unions construct a very limited role for the workers they represent, close quote. So it is worth considering seriously the underlying question or one of them. You can disagree with the legal premise of the right to work forces that uh, argue against unionization in general because they say workers are not well served and in the public sector um, they are engaging in public policy advocacy essentially. You don't have to agree with that legal premise, but you can ask the very legitimate question, what's a union worth to workers? So what are the claim that unions do not work in the people's interest? Weiner argues, quote, labor has countered the rights arguments on narrow grounds, railing against free riders, who they say will require unions to represent non-members who would be paying nothing at all, passing that burden off to dues-paying members. But this argument has little resonance to workers who already feel that they are not well represented, close quote. 
So the problem is that labor has ceded ground to the right by making the dispute about competitive finances rather than the fundamental moral value behind labor solidarity. In Weiner's view, quote, organized labor has by and large forgotten the grammar and vocabulary of class struggle. She compares this approach with another way of framing union rights as individual rights that are aligned with civil rights. So you see this come up in the so-called Labor Bill of Rights framework, which many have advocated for. Um, and that gives a sense of labor's social entitlement. It sort of helps frame it as a sort of social contract. But Weiner wants to go further than that. She points to a different example, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, CORE, which is the Reform Caucus of the Chicago Teachers Union that led that very successful strike effort a few years ago. In her mind, this strikes the right balance between volunteerism and collective responsibility and direct action, which is the basis of activism, and the rights-based framework that gives unionization its moral force. She writes, quote, This caucus conceived of the CTU as a member-driven union that served members' economic interests best when it supported social justice issues across the board. In other words, the union promised something that was worth supporting, that it would advocate not just for workers it represented directly, but for the entire community, for the entire working class for that matter. And that made members not only want to finance the operation, but to actively join it as members. Organizing in this context, Weiner argues, is hard work, but the whole idea behind defending unions from lawsuits like Janus is showing that they really do put in the hard work for their members. She goes on, it requires listening and a deep commitment to union ideals because people often hold beliefs that are inimical to collective action. This work also requires having a union you trust will make a difference in the lives of its members. Like democracy anywhere, union democracy is difficult to obtain and fragile. It can be inefficient and it creates tensions, but it's also the key to union power, close quote. The real question for Janice, which unions have yet to truly wrestle with, is whether it has the responsibility and can take the responsibility needed to negotiate in its membership's best interest, and in the interest of the working class generally. If it can't hold up its end of the bargain, then what good is collectively bargaining with management? To achieve a stronger labor movement, labor needs to acknowledge that if they don't want workers to take movement for granted, it can't take them for granted either. I chose Ian Culgren's piece at Politico titled, Why Didn't Unions Stop Sexual Harassment? This piece deals with the real questions that many union members and staffers and labor movement allies are asking themselves right now, and delves into the problems with existing labor unions and their responses, both structural and individual, to sexual harassment. For actors, the craft union model has left gaps in which harassment can fall. The unions must monitor hundreds of business entities that have short-term relationships with their workers, and much of the opportunity for men like Harvey Weinstein to harass and assault women came in between their official hiring at the more nebulous informal networking events or dinners. Culgren writes, quote, but SAG after a protections take effect only after an actress is hired, excluding the after hours networking that's usually necessary to get hired. Recall the Hollywood cliche casting couch describes the extraction of sexual favors from job seekers, not job holders. The fallout from the Weinstein case is prompting SAG-AFTRA to rethink how it protects members, President Gabriel Carteris said in an interview. These situations you're hearing about, these are all prior to coming into our contract world, Carteris said. When somebody's going into casting or an audition or they're going to meet a producer, that's not in our contract. Our contract lives and breathes on the set they're working. She said she's now seeking new ways to work with members outside of contracted hours, end quote. 
In other situations, people who experienced assault simply did not feel any more comfortable reporting to their unions than they did to their bosses or to HR. This is a problem, we should say, for the culture of the union. Did workers not know their union could help? Had prior experience taught them that the union reps would not care? Did the union treat sexual harassment like something outside of its purview? The sexual harassment problem within labor might hold some answers, as recent weeks have also seen high-level staffers at SEIU and the AFL-CIO let go for prior harassment of workers under their supervision. The culture at too many unions has been that anything goes in service of winning for the workers, yet organizers and union staff are also workers, and their working conditions need to be just as good as the ones they are demanding for the members. We plan on continuing this discussion at Belabored, and we would love to hear from our listeners. What can unions do better on this front? Have you experienced harassment within or without the labor movement? Did your union help? Do you have a story of winning because of union organizing or because your union fought for you? You can always email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. That is all we have time for today. As always, thank you for listening and for your support. A special thanks, as we do on every episode, to our donors who make the show possible. A sustaining membership of $5 a month gets you a sweet, sweet belabored tote bag, digital subscription to Descent Magazine. Find out more at descentmagazine.org. If you are a grave digger or a farm worker, a socialist newly elected to office, or a journalist facing union busting, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Please, if you are listening to us on iTunes or another podcast app, please leave us a review. Tell people that you enjoy the show. And uh, we will be back with you soon. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.